Okay, let's, uh, let's head back to Daniel. We're looking at Daniel chapter 2, and uh, this morning we'll be aiming to finish Daniel chapter 2. My mum accused me last week of dragging, dragging the first half of Daniel out so that you would buy my book to get the answer. There's no book, by the way. So yes, mum, I'm going to finish chapter 2 today, no worries. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll, read, uh, we'll just read from verse 31 to 36 uh, to start off with. Special welcome if you're visiting us for the first time today. Hope you enjoy the, uh, the service as well as the message this morning. And today's topic will be on prophecy. So this morning we're looking at for the first time in Daniel uh, how God can predict the future and tell us what's going to come uh, as he did with now Daniel and King, King Nebuchadnezzar who was the uh, emperor or the king of Babylon. Daniel chapter 2 verse 31 says, Thou, O king... This is Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that you have given us so much information about the future and that you are the only God, the God of gods, who knows the future, who knows the end from the beginning, and you are in control. Indeed, there is nothing that takes you by surprise. We pray for your blessing this morning. We pray for your grace, your wisdom, and your understanding that our eyes may be open to your truth. And we pray for your presence working within our hearts. We thank you once again for this time in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week we examined the first half of chapter 2, which told us that King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the greatest man on this planet at that stage, he was the, 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 the greatest emperor that had ever uh, existed to that point, had a dream. And this dream really troubled him. Uh, and so he called in all his wisest men and he wanted to know the meaning of this dream. But not only that, he wanted to know what the dream was because he'd forgotten the dream. Ever had that situation where you had a dream or you might have had a nightmare, but you actually forgot what it was? I had that all the time. Very frustrating. <laughs> so he called in all the smartest people that he had around him, and he had magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, very smart people, to tell him the dream and its interpretation. But none could tell him the interpretation. And none could definitely tell him what dream he had, because no one had the ability to be able to do that. So when you're the king and you have complete power, he said, off with their heads, the whole lot of them. You know, got upset. 
And they said to him, they accused him of being unreasonable. They said to him, no one's ever asked that sort of thing from astrologers and magicians and all these different types of people before. And he wouldn't have a bar of it. He essentially said to them, you're, a, you're all a, a con artists. I know you're all con artists, so now I'm going to do away with the whole lot of you if you can't tell me what the dream was. So he was about to have them all executed. And he actually had sent out his guard to go and round them all up when this guard uh, reached Daniel and Daniel said what's going on here and um, the guard explained to him and, and Daniel immediately asked for some time because Daniel hadn't heard of it before Daniel wasn't aware of it and so he was about to be rounded up and executed with the rest of them and he asked for his permission to have a bit of time so he could pray to God and that God might be able to provide him this particular answer so he and his friends got together because they were all affected here and they got on their knees and they prayed to God and they prayed for mercy and they said, God, please save us from this situation that we're finding ourselves in. And God answered their prayer. So Daniel praised God for his mercy and his power and that he is the only God who can do such things because he's the type of God who knows what's going on in your head and in your heart. There is no other God who can, who can know that sort of information because there is only one God. So he praised God for his power in front of the king and he praised God and he praised God for his mercy upon him and he declared to King Nebuchadnezzar as he walked into his court saying that the God that I serve is the only God who can give you this answer. None of your, none of your smart people could do it, no magicians, no astrologers, no one who looked up at the skies or looked, apparently spoke to dead people or consulted spirits or anything like that. No different type of person could do it, only God could. And that's where we left him last week where he was about to describe this, this, uh, this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. So here we have, and we've just read it, Daniel's explanation of the dream or he, he describes the dream okay and you can just see King Nebuchadnezzar's face you know when like you haven't had a dream but someone says something that sparks the dream and you remember it all over again well imagine King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, face imagine his reaction when Daniel describes his dream to a T and everything that Daniel's describing is the lights bulbs going off oh yes that's right Yes, that's right. Now I see it. Now I remember this huge and terrifying statue that he'd seen in his dream that terrified him. Actually, it was, it was a nightmare for him because it said that he couldn't sleep anymore after that. And it had this statue had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver. It had a stomach and thighs of brass and legs of iron. And then it had feet and toes where iron was like mixed up with clay. And then he saw in this, uh, this particular dream the stone come and it lands on the feet, smashes the feet to a point where the whole thing falls apart, falls on the ground and then is blown away like chaff. Have you ever seen people where, they, where, they, uh, where they're on the threshing floor where they're, they're throwing the wheat up in the, in the air and as the wind catches it, it blows the chaff away so only the wheat's left, right? So... The picture is that all those, all those empires, which we'll look at that now, all those things were just blown away and there was no more place found for them. Um, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar at this point realised that Daniel knew stuff that no one else knew. And Daniel made it very clear who he got this information from. But imagine the thought, you are the, the most powerful man on the planet. 
you have conquered this little insignificant group of people called Israel. You've carted most of them off. And now this young boy, he was still a young boy. I mean, he was, he was carted off between 13 and 15 years of age. This wasn't just a few years later, so he was probably less than 18 years old. Telling him what his dream was, that he dreamed in his own bed, when all of his smartest people in his empire couldn't do it. Before we get to the interpretation... I have to lay some groundwork for you so you understand what this prophecy revolves around. Okay, um, Even though this prophecy is speaking about future empires that would come after King Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and we're going to look at those four empires in a moment, and which cover a period of over 2,000 years in the future from that point, the prophecy really is about Israel. The prophecy about is about really God's people. And these these empires affected his people. And why? It's focused on only the empires that really have affected the land of Israel. And more specifically Jerusalem. The focus is also upon those empires, and if we'll, maybe if I get a chance next week, I'll, I'll, sh I'll bring in some maps to show you on, on, uh, on the uh, projector here that cover the area around the Mediterranean. So the sea, when it mentions the sea in, um, in this book and in other books, where it mentions simply the sea, that's often referring to the sea, the Mediterranean. Because these four empires really are focused all around that area there. Because Israel butts onto the Mediterranean Sea, it's on its coast. Okay. It also references empires that directly take over the previous one. So the four empires we're talking about here start with Babylon. Okay, then the Medo-Persians or the Medes and the Persians overtake Babylon and the Persian Empire comes into play. Then the Greeks take over. Those of you who are Greek, you know your, uh, you know your history about your people. And you took over the, the Persians. Yes, you fought at the uh, Thermopylae, whatever it was, and you, you beat the Persians there. Then after the Persians, after and that was, that was Alexander the Great, mind you. Okay? Alexander the Great then overtook the Persian Empire and, and, and completely absorbed it. Uh, and then after them came the Italians, I mean the Romans, who overtook all of the Greeks. Okay, um, and then you find at the end there's this like mixing which are, uh, of the clay and um, and thing, which are still really the Roman, it was still really the Roman Empire, but there's something strange about it. Okay, which I'll explain to you uh, in a moment. So it really only co it covers four main empires that have existed for over two and a half thousand years. Okay, from from our point point of view, but there have been other people who have tried to create world empires. For those of you who've done some history, you'd understand that Muhammad, when he, he gained power in the Middle East, wanted to create an empire okay, that spread from the Middle East when he, when he, when he uh, went to Mecca and Medina and he wanted to grow and, and, uh, and it did spread uh, continually. They even took over parts of Spain and, and went into southern Italy and places like that um, to spread Islam into the entire world. 
didn't, didn't make it. A fellow called Genghis Khan, those of you who know Genghis Khan, um, ruled a huge, huge empire which included Mongolia, China, Iraq, and even when he got up into Poland and into Europe, but didn't get Israel, so he didn't make the cut. Um, he didn't overcome the Holy Roman Empire as such. He only managed to take snippets of it. Um, there was a fellow called Napoleon. Those of you who know a fellow called Napoleon, apparently he was only a very short sort of guy, um, with ego problems, um, wanted to create another world empire. And so he, he started to spread. In fact, he, caught, he actually... Um, uh, sought to create a new Roman Empire and he proclaimed himself emperor at one stage. So on May the 18th, 1804, Napoleon proclaimed himself emperor and Josephine the empress. His coronation ceremony took place on, on that date or in 1804 in the Notre Dame. So the one that burnt, that had a fire, okay? And with incredible splendor and everything like that. And he, he was a, a masterful um, uh, a military man, um, but he fell as well. The Russians, I think, got him, didn't they? Or was it Waterloo that ruined the whole thing? It was the English again. Was it? Is that English? Russians. 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 Yeah. Then there was a fellow after him called Hitler. You heard of this guy, who also had aspirations of actually creating a world empire. Okay, um, and. His idea of that world empire, he called it the Third Reich. The reason he called it the Third Reich is because, and that the word Reich simply means empire. Um, he, the in his, by his definition, the First Reich was the Holy Roman Empire. Then the Second Reich was the was the German Empire from 1871 to 1918, and he wanted to create a Third Reich or a Third Empire that would encompass all of Europe. I think he wanted to become the next emperor. Um, didn't quite make it again. Then there was another um, group called uh, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the Ottoman Empire, which lasted for four to six hundred years, I think, actually had conquered the Middle East, including Jerusalem, um, and they came probably pretty close uh, to doing that. But even the Ottoman Empire uh, sided with the Germans in First, in First World War, and they ended up being um, defeated in that whole thing. But they still didn't; they couldn't conquer Europe, and. When World War I ended, um, there was a, um, well, they lost all their lands, essentially all their lands were carved up. And in uh, the end of World War I, in 1918, the British took control of Palestine or, or the land of, of Israel and all that area in the Middle East. And um, the League of Nations issued the, the British with a, a mandate to manage that area, to manage Israel, and also gave them a, a document to not only control that region, but which it included a provision to establish a Jewish homeland. The Jews had, Jews had not been in their homeland, or they hadn't had their own state where they managed themselves for over 2,000 years at that point. So to this point, no one has been able, been able to create a fifth empire that completely overtakes the Roman Empire, which is the last one on that particular list in its various forms as well. So we look 
and then there's this image of this, this person with his feet and ten toes at the end, right? And those ten toes right, are actually quite significant because they represent, right at the end, a confederacy of ten nations, with ten kings. They actually come together and they come together at a time that we call, that we understand, is the time of the tribulation or what's called in the Bible also uh, Jacob's trouble. But let's continue with this, look at this interpretation. So Daniel chapter 2 verse 37. So I'll just give, give you a bit of a background, okay? Daniel chapter 2 verse 37. He says, Thou, O king, so he's giving him the interpretation of these, of these various parts of this statue. He says, Thou, O king, you, king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So the first empire that, that overtook Jerusalem and carried away its people, even though the Assyrians had taken the northern tribes already of Israel, um, was Babylon. And Babylon at this particular point, under King Nebuchadnezzar, was the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. That head of gold was King Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. And he was the personification of that empire. So as we have seen in previous sermon, uh, sermon, Babylon was a mighty empire that ruled a huge area of land. Um, and it reached its pinnacle under King Nebuchadnezzar. And, it, and his reign was between 605 BC to around uh, 520, uh, 562 BC. And the glory of that city is actually in the history books. So, that, so if you've ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world in those stages. Okay? Okay, at that stage. So it was a magnificent city. And if the descriptions are, are, are anywhere near correct, this thing was huge and had huge walls and it, and it was absolutely beautiful inside. Okay? Um, but after King Nebuchadnezzar's death, everything went downhill. You see, he was, although he was the head of gold, after his death, there were four other kings who died within, a, within, a, within 21 years of him, and Babylon fell. And it would have been a very strange thing to imagine if you were King Nebuchadnezzar, looking at all the power that you had, the armies that you had, the lands that you controlled, and the city that you lived in, which looked impregnable, um, to even imagine that another group of people was going to come and overtake you. But that's exactly what happened 21 years after his, after his death. Okay? Look at verse 39. It says, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and then another third kingdom of brass, uh, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Okay, so even though this doesn't mention the empire which would come after Babylon and overtake Babylon, it's, it's represented by the silver. In 539 BC, Babylon was defeated by the Medes and Persians. And the once great uh, and impregnable city of Babylon was overtaken. And so as silver is sort of less valuable than gold, the Medo-Persian Empire was not as cohesive as the Babylonian Empire. It was less cohesive, less in control 
of the way of, of than what Babylon was. The empire lacked the unity that Babylon actually had, and so in the image of one head, it progresses down to the chest and two arms, which sort of give you the impression that this thing's got parts to it, okay, that are not exactly connected. So you know, what do they say? They say the head, the 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 man is the the husband is the head of the wife and, and the wife is the neck because she controls which direction he has to go, right? <laughs> oh, you haven't heard that one before? <laughs> Don't use it. Don't record it. Cut that out of the actual thing. <laughs> the, head is con the, the head controls the body, right? Okay, so the idea is that, that, that Babylon was, a, uh, was an empire that had very strict control, that had power, it had authority vested in one person. When you start getting down to this picture of a chest and then arms, the idea is that that, that sort of unified, centralised power is starting to not be as cohesive as before, and that's what we find with the Medo-Persian Empire. It lasted, though, almost 200 years in total. And then the third um, uh, kingdom is represented by the by the, the, the stomach and the, the belly and the thighs, which is of brass. Um, the Persian Empire was conquered by the Greeks, and as I've said before, by literally Alexander the Great, who conquered all those all those areas. In fact, got into India and all those all those things, and um, in, in different places. And uh, by a very young age, and he died at a very young age, what ended up happening with the Greek Empire was that it was actually it was, it was divided uh, among his generals, among four particular uh, parts, uh, and that that caused something to occur. Um, not only did, did, did Alexander um, conquer all those areas the Persians had, uh, had been before, but what ended up happening was that Greek then became the common language of the entire world. Okay? It, was, it became the common language. So you know, you know if you go overseas, probably the most common language in the world now is English. Okay, everyone sort of learns English as a as a, a, a universal sort of language. Um, Greek was the language that everyone knew, even in Jesus' day. Right, much later, Greek was the common language of the day, and that's why your New Testaments were written in Greek. They weren't written in Hebrew. Um, so anyway, that's one of the legacies of Alexander the Great. We're going to look at a lot more details in the coming weeks because this is not the only place where these empires are spoken of. It's repeated again. God gives Daniel a vision later on. He gives him more and more information about this sort of stuff. We're going to look at these things again, but I just want to give you a breakdown of what these kingdoms are in their order. And so the, the Greeks took over uh, the, per the Persians, um, and then this fourth kingdom comes about, which is mentioned in verse 40, and it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong, uh, shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. So the, the picture we have here is of two legs, okay? And these legs are made of iron. So you'll notice that it's the, the statue is top heavy. Hmm? But they're, but it's gaining strength. So the the, the metal, the, it's top heavy, and it's more valuable on top than it is as you come down. 
Okay, but iron is stronger than brass, it's stronger than silver, and it's stronger. See, if, you, if I made a, a sword out of gold for you, and I, f I fought with someone who had a sword of brass or, uh, or steel, I probably wouldn't win, if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, so it's more powerful but less valuable. And this is the picture. And the statue is almost top heavy when you look at it, right? Because gold is very heavy compared to the, the rest of it. But we have here two legs of iron which represent the Roman Empire. Okay, the Romans took over from the Greeks and the Romans built their empire on the foundation of all these other empires that had gone before them. See, roads were already in place in many places and, 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 uh, and administrative sites were already set up in a number of places. There, was, there were cities that had been established and the Romans were very good administrators. When they took over a place, they absorbed it into themselves. They allowed them to continue to worship their own gods and even speak their own languages. But they absorbed them, took part of their people as, uh, as soldiers, incorporated them as much as they could. And the Romans were very good at, um, at administration and building roads. And also they were quite ruthless. Um, it, it, with any... Um, uh, uh, nation that resisted them and if you remember in 70 AD they destroyed Jerusalem to the ground because the Jews had sought to uh, rebel against them and their rule and uh, they literally that temple that's there um, remember the, the temple um, they, this thing was meant to be a magnificent structure only the 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 things of the foundation are left so that wailing wall is literally part of a foundation they, they tore it down brick by brick. They destroyed the whole thing. So they can be quite ruthless, and, and they were the ones who invented the idea of crucifixion. Okay, So if anyone uh, wanted to uh, resist their power, they'd put you on display in front of everyone. That was their way of dealing with uh, people who were resisting. Um, when Jesus, By the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Rome was the ruling empire. Okay, um, under was it Augustus Caesar, I believe? Um, the and they ruled Israel at that time as well. And because of the Romans were in place, certain events and certain situations had come into play, as I've mentioned already, which opened the door for Jesus to fulfill all of prophecy. You see, God had all these things lined up beforehand. He knew that the, the, the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks would come into play and all those things would build one another until the perfect culmination would come into play and the Romans would be in charge when Jesus uh, came into the world. And because Jesus came into the world at that particular time and the Romans were in charge while well, Jesus was then born in Bethlehem, he was able to interact with um, the leaders who were in Jerusalem. The Jews were in uh, Israel at that stage, but they weren't governing themselves. They were under Roman occupation and rule. That's why there was a temple there as well. That's why that there was a Sanhedrin. So Jesus was talking with Pharisees and Sadducees and people who were trying to rule. They had limited rule among themselves. That's why you have this interaction with the Jews and with Pilate. Okay, They had to go to Pilate to get permission because they weren't allowed to execute people themselves. So they had to lean on him to actually do the dirty work. And uh, that's why you had the situation where Jesus is crucified using a Roman system. And they had to go to, to the Romans to actually try and get that done. 
so that everything culminated to this particular point. What Rome also did, and what Rome was very good at, was keeping the peace. Um, there was a particular a phrase called the Pax Romana, which allowed at that stage everything, the, the empire was huge, but it was tightly controlled, which means that if you're a criminal and you saw your criminal buddies, you know, lined up on a street uh, on crosses, um, you probably wouldn't be too keen to get to have the same thing happen to you. So the Romans were very strong, not just militarily, but managing uh, managing societies and making sure that people complied with the actual rules. So it was a very peaceful time in the world. It's, and it was a specific time of such peace that people could freely travel anywhere within the empire without having worries about getting mugged and getting you know killed along the way. The Romans were very good at building roads, so there was an, an enormous uh, infrastructure that they built, including aqueducts and things like that. They were very good at doing that sort of stuff there. So. In, when, when Jesus had been crucified and then he rose again and ascended into heaven, you have this situation where the gospel is going out into the world, right? And because there were roads and because there were ships that travelled the Mediterranean, there was a huge amount of, um, of commerce and trade that was going on. There was a whole lot of peace going on. Paul could just jump on a ship and travel wherever he had to go. You know, and, and they could easily walk where they had to go. They could, they could uh, get around quite safely and easily. And that led the, the way for the gospel to spread very quickly into the world. But you might ask, well, what are the two legs got to do with anything? Well, for much of Rome's existence, it was split into two. Um, by the time Domitian uh, came into, um, into leadership there, he split the Roman Empire into two because it was so huge and because they loved their, their administration, he said, you know what, it's impossible for us to govern and administer the whole of the Roman Empire from one place. We're going to split this thing up into east and west and they actually created two separate uh, arms and, and that literally stayed. And by the time that... Uh, um, Constantine came around and he set up another uh, headquarters in Constantinople. Um, the Roman Empire was split into two for a very long time. In fact, right up to the 1800s, that's not long ago, was it? The, the Holy Roman Empire was still recognised by most of, the, of the, um, the, the leadership in Europe and by the Roman Catholic Church as well. And if you looked, if you've ever seen that that yellow sort of flag with a black eagle with its wings spread out with two heads. Ever seen that sort of symbol before? It's a black eagle with two heads looking in two different directions with, a red, with red beaks. Um, that's a symbol of and was used still into the 1800s. It was only after Napoleon came around and uh, I think it was uh, one of the Austrian kings that abdicated. Um, the Roman Empire was still a thing. Okay. Um, that symbol meant the east and west divisions of the Roman Empire. So if you've ever had a chance to look at that, I might even bring it and show you on an on a, uh, a overhead here as well. Um, let's go to verse 41. We're going to reach the feet now. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. 
but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly broken. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, what is going on here? Rome was great militarily. It was it was great uh, it, from an administration point of view. But now we have the situation where you've reached the end of the line here, and you reach the feet. And in the feet, you don't just have iron; you have iron mixed with clay. And clay is not a very neither a uh, a precious metal nor a metal at all. And when you try to mix clay with iron, what sort of a mix do you actually get? It doesn't stick. Right? And the picture is doesn't stick together very well. It doesn't. It, the iron might be there in part, but it's when you start mixing clay with it. Either if the clay dries, it's brittle, and if the clay is miry, if the clay is like watery, it's it just pulls apart. So the idea here is that in, it shows that right towards the end, there's going to come like a form of the Roman Empire again. But it's not going to be as strong as the Roman Empire was under the Caesars. Um, where iron is able to subdue and, and, and break things, iron mixed with clay does, struggles to break things very well. Previous empires were simply that. They were empires governed by emperors. Right? You had one head who had full control of everything, like Nebuchadnezzar. He said, with one edict, I want all those magicians, those Chaldeans, those astrologers, I want them all dead. And you know what? He could do it. Whatever he said had to go. So most of the empires that have come from the past, the emperor had ultimate control. Whatever he wanted, went. But now you have a situation where it's less so. So look at our day here. We have this wonderful thing called democracy, right? <laughs> democracy is wonderful because it gives the people the power, doesn't it? Because if you don't like the leader who's there, or if you don't like the party that's there, you can vote them out after a few years. It doesn't stick for very long, does it? It doesn't connect for very long. Whereas if you had a, an emperor, you really wouldn't have a say. You're stuck with him. The difference here is that when you have a demo democratic system, you're not necessarily sticking very well together. You, you get more of a choice. And so this picture here almost pictures um, the, the democratic monarchies that we have today. So a democratic monarchy like, like England, like Britain or, or the UK, and I mean, you have royal families, right? If you go back a thousand years or so, those royal families would have had the say with what went. They could do whatever they wanted. Today, can't do very much at all, can they? They're symbolic more than anything else. They serve a purpose. So it's different to what it was before. So the picture here is that at the time of the end, the feet and the toes are like a Roman model, 
but with weakness in it. And that weakness is most likely democratic. Okay? Even when, and if you look at the Roman Empire itself, um, the Roman Empire, if you've studied history, was overtaken by the barbarians from the north, okay, by the Germanic tribes. And if you've heard of Visigoths and, and Lombards and all these different types of, uh, of, uh, of, of um, tribes that came down from the Germanic tribes, they actually overran the, um, the, the Roman Empire and caused it to apparently fall, but didn't. You see, most of the countries we have today, so the French, they were a Germanic tribe originally, Normans, okay? Or the, yes, the, remember, I think I said to you, my name's Frank, which means I'm not really French, but it's, it's they speak French because of the where they went. The Italians uh, were another tribe that essentially came down. And so you have the Lombardy region in, uh, in Italy. Um, you have most of the regions were essentially settled by these Germanic tribes that came down and conquered those areas. Um, it's, it's interesting when you look at it. And then what ended up happening is they adopted, which what's funny is every empire that defeated the empire before essentially took that over but enforced its own culture on that area. Does that make sense? So when the Greeks took over the Persians, they didn't allow the Persian culture to be the, the number one thing. No, no, they, they set things up in a German, in, a, in a, 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 a Greek way. They actually shared the Greek language. They made everything Greek, okay? The difference when the German tribes came down and invaded uh, Rome is that they loved the idea of Rome. When they, saw the, when they saw Rome, the city of Rome, they saw its splendour, they saw the Colosseum, they saw the, the way it was structured, they actually adopted it into their culture. They even took on its religion. So they took on the Roman Catholic Church's faith because that was the official faith of the Roman Empire. And so the, the Roman Empire was never truly or completely conquered, ever. It has simply morphed from one thing to another over the last 2,000 years, and it's still floating around. There's something called the EU today, okay, which has and covers all the areas that the Roman Empire essentially covered. So it's the picture here is at the end, there's going to be some sort of confederacy um, by these democratic sort of nations that come together right in the end and that will be during the tribulation period and that's when Jesus returns and that's what we're looking at now so we have these 10 nations that come together and they unite during the tribulation or time of Jacob's trouble and look at verse 44 it says and in the days of these kings in the days of these these 10 nations that come together shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron the brass the clay the silver and the gold 
The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So the final thing that happens after we go through all these stages and all these world empires and we get to these final toes, there's a stone that, is, that lands on these feet, on these feet and destroys this whole image. Um, that stone is Jesus Christ. He's the stone that comes. So we speak about this when we talk about the first coming and second coming of Christ. Okay, the second coming of Christ is that stone that lands on the feet of this of this image and destroys it and takes over the entire world. Notice how it says that this stone is cut out without hands. Jesus was neither created nor made. The picture here is that God is a holy mountain, right? God himself, his kingdom is like a holy mountain and that stone came from that mountain, from heaven, lands on the feet of these, of these, uh, these successive kingdoms, destroys a whole lot of them and then ends up filling the entire world, which means it becomes a great man in the world, which means God's kingdom has become the earth now. God's kingdom takes over the entire world. So I want to give you a bit of a sneak preview. So if you turn to Daniel chapter 7, I don't want to do this with all of them because it's just too much information for us, but I want to show you that God then gave another vision which builds on this original vision of this uh, statue and I want you to focus here on who it's speaking about because the, the, the picture here is of the return of Christ. Daniel 7, 7 says, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. That's the Roman Empire, the fourth beast, which is the fourth, the fourth kingdom, the legs. Dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding. And it had great iron teeth. There you go, there's your iron again. It devoured and broke in pieces and, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Eh? That lines up with your ten toes. Verse 8. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That's your Antichrist. Okay? We'll talk about him a bit more later on. Verse 9, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. That's all the different empires. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall 
shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. There's your stone, which comes from heaven, lands on the feet, destroys the kingdoms that have come before, and rules the earth. You know, one of the things that Jesus loved to call himself was the Son of Man. It was one of his favourite terms for himself. And here you see one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus described himself coming in the clouds of heaven. He's speaking and referring to Daniel's testimony here. Jesus is that stone. He is the final king. And so we have here a picture. Remember I said to you, this is really about Israel in a sense, right? Because it's what affects them. The coming kingdoms mark, all those ones that I've described, mark what's called the time of the Gentiles. The Gentiles from the, the time that the Babylonians took them away to the time they, the time of the end, these are the times of the Gentiles. This represents the end of Israel as a kingdom and a self-governing uh, uh, independent nation. From this time forward, even though they did eventually return to Israel, they never had control. They never had control of their own destiny without having someone over the top of them. So they returned during Nehemiah and Ezra's work. They never regained their independence. They may have had a temple. They may have rebuilt the temple. They may have even rebuilt walls. But they were under the governance of other empires. And so the time, when you read the time of the Gentiles, it refers to the time when Israel lost control. And they were overtaken. And, they, and, Israel, and Jerusalem and Israel have been under the foot, feet of the Gentiles for all of these years, from Nebuchadnezzar all through to the Roman Empire. But what's funny, what's funny is that 1948, I believe, or 1947, 48, the formation of Israel as an independent nation was the first time they set foot in their own country again after two and a half thousand years and they've been able to govern themselves, right? Which is really amazing because no other nation on the planet has ever done anything like that. And, they, and they've done that after Rome destroyed and sacked Jerusalem completely. And they were dispersed into essentially all the world from that, from that particular place. Let me share with you a couple of scripture verses. Luke chapter 21. Go with me to Luke chapter 21 because Jesus actually foretold this and foretells of another time when they will once again be surrounded by the armies of the world. Luke 21 verse 20. Jesus warns the Jews, he's warning Israel and he says, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck. In those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, 
and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now that is not, the time of the Gentiles did not start then, it was continuing then, but there is an end the point here, there's an end to the time of the Gentiles. And by the way, you and I are Gentiles, okay? The time of the Gentiles is coming to an end. And the time when these last ten kings will set themselves up is probably pretty close. Um, the times we live in are very, very interesting. We don't know exactly how long this is going to be, but the reason a lot of people are so interested in, in, uh, in prophecy at the moment is that everything seems to be pointing to one direction. And we know the time of the Gentiles is coming to an end. And look at verse 25 in Luke. It says, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. He's speaking to his people again. Look at verse 29. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When, you, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What he's saying is, this picture of the budding tree, right? And I'm not sure if you remember the, the, the point where Jesus uh, cursed a fig tree because it showed no fruit. Okay, so the picture here is that Jesus came and presented himself as the stone of God, right? To set up the kingdom on the earth and his people rejected him. All right, and I'm going to read a passage for you now which describes why we are here today. Because what he said was, he said, I'm going to take this from you and going to give it to a people that are going to run with it. All right, but he's running with us as his citizens on this earth but he will still come one day and take dominion of this planet the what's what's ended up happening is is that israel's rejection of their king opened the door for us to enter into the church that's what ended up happening his people were meant to be the ones to be the light to the entire world when he came he came as their king when he came, he said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was their Messiah. He was their king. And they said, We don't want you as our king. And so they crucified him. But through his... Do you think God didn't know that? That took God by surprise? No, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Because in the death of his son, he offered salvation to the entire world. So even though they made the massive mistake and they're still the Bible says have a veil over their eyes they're not seeing what's going on here they've missed the opportunity the Bible says one day they will and they're going to realize the mistake they've made 
And it's going to come right at the end when they realise that their Messiah was the one they rejected and they've been through all this heartache for the last 2,000 years because of their own stubbornness. But have a look at have a look at King Nebuchadnezzar's response here. Look at Daniel two forty six. Daniel two forty six. King Nebuchadnezzar responds in an unbelievable way. For someone who doesn't believe in the God of Israel, the God who who Daniel and uh, and his and his friends believed in. Look at his response. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odours unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief over the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abnego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat at the gate of the king. Now Nebuchadnezzar spoke an amazing truth here. And he kept his promise to Daniel that whoever would give him the, um, the interpretation of the dream and tell him the dream, that he would make him rich, that he would make him a ruler. And he did. And Daniel said, I don't want to rule Babylon. I'll give it to my mates. Let them look after Babylon. I'm going to sit at your, at your gate, king. I want to be the one who lets people in, lets in people, and I want to be your eyes and ears. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, you're going to be sitting at my gate to do that at his own gate not the gate of the city but his own gate okay which meant that Daniel was making decisions on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar at that stage but he says here and he the words are amazing when you think that in the city of Babylon were over 47 temples dedicated to a multiplicity of gods and he had his own god King Nebuchadnezzar he had his own god Marduk which was the king of their gods and yet here he is, this guy who worshipped other gods, and he's saying, Daniel, your God is the God of all the other gods. He's their God. And he is. Regardless of how many gods there are in this world and what names they give themselves and whatever entity they are or whether, whatever they're not, there is one God who is God over all of these other gods, whether they're fake or whether they're real. And that's this God. That is the God who can reveal the secrets of a, man's, of a man's mind and his heart. A God who knows every thought that's in our, in our hearts with every intent and feeling that we have. He knows it. This is a God who knows the end from the beginning. This is a God who's never taken unawares by anything. This is a God who has shown his character to be one of love and mercy and grace. This is a God who created everything in the universe and controls it. This is a God who sent his son into the world to save the world from its sin, to reconcile the world back to himself. This is the God of gods. So turn with me at the end because I want to tell you about the stone. Matthew 21, verse 42. Matthew 21, verse 42. 
Jesus was well aware that they were going to reject him as their king. He knew that they were not ready for him. But look at what he calls himself here. In Matthew 21 verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, he's speaking to these people who are about to reject him, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. That's the foundation. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parable, or his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Um, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you the ruler of your own kingdom? Are you the god of your own little world? Are you the emperor of all that you survey? Because if you are, then I've got a warning for you. Because you aren't God, you aren't an emperor, you aren't even a king or a queen. And the Bible says that this stone will you can either fall on this stone and be broken in other words the picture here is that you fall before him asking for mercy in a repentant way because you realize that you're a sinner before him who needs to be saved you can either fall on your knees be broken before him and receive mercy and salvation the alternative is that he falls on you and you're ground to powder that's not a pleasant picture, is it? Um, if you're not saved this morning, there is a stone that's coming. And he will grind to powder the kingdoms and the kings of this world if they reject him. He will rule the world in righteousness and love and peace. And all the stuff that we see around us that we don't like, all the, the hatred, all the bitterness, all the strife, all the sin, everything that goes on will not be there. When Peter got up to speak to his people who had just rejected and crucified uh, their saviour and their king, and there were gathered thousands of people uh, in Jerusalem that, that, that's, at that stage, um, he speaks to these, uh, these people and he says, filled with the Holy Ghost, he says, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, after they had healed someone, right, of, of a, uh, he wasn't able to walk. Actually, turn with me because this is the last passage I'm going to read and we're going to close it with this. Acts chapter 4 verse 8. Because I want to just close with this because I want to impress upon you the love that this Saviour has for you and me. And the decision that we're demanded to make. Acts chapter 4 verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to, this, to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doeth this man, does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught, which is, was set at nothing, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that's what I'm going to leave, with, leave you with today. Because the stone who will come and take dominion of this world one day offers salvation to all those who will fall on him. And he offers eternal life to those who will simply receive him. And he doesn't say, you have to follow all these rules to be perfect, to get enter into my presence. He goes, no, no, I've done it all for you. I loved you that much that I gave my life on a cross for you. I shed my blood for you so that you can be made whole again and acceptable to God. Salvation is a gift which he paid for, which we simply receive. And you can know today that you are in his kingdom, that you are a part of him and that you have a home in heaven one day because we're marching to Zion, to Pharaoh worlds on high. If you have Christ, you have it all. But if you don't have Christ, what do you have? God bless you all. Thank you.